Welcome to the Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories. I'm Annie, and tonight I will be reading you the last couple of chapters from Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Published in 1877, the novel was an immediate success and was written in the form of an autobiography through the eyes of a horse. And Anna Sewell has said that she wrote it to induce a kindness and sympathy towards horses. I have read a few chapters over the last few weeks from Black Beauty, and tonight Black Beauty will say goodbye to Jerry and his family and move on again. I will then read the last two chapters to see how Black Beauty's story ends. Thank you for listening as I have shared a few of my most memorable chapters from Black Beauty that I read as a child. If you are enjoying the Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also leave us a rating or review. I really do appreciate all your support. Now it's time to relax. Get comfy and forget about all your worries from the day. And enjoy tonight's story. Chapter 45 Jerry's New Year Christmas and the New Year are very merry times for some people, but for cabmen and cabmen's horses it is no holiday, though it may be a harvest. There are so many parties, balls and places of amusement open that the work is hard and often late. Sometimes driver and horse have to wait for hours in the rain or frost shivering with cold, whilst the merry people within are dancing away to the music. I wonder if the beautiful ladies ever think of the weary cabman waiting on his box and his patient beast standing till his legs get stiff with cold. I had now most of the evening work, as I was well accustomed to standing, and Jerry was also more afraid of Hotspur taking cold. We had a great deal of late work in the Christmas week, and Jerry's cough was bad. But however late we were, Polly sat up for him and came out with the lantern to meet him, looking anxious and troubled. On the evening of the new year, we had to take two gentlemen to a house in one of the West End squares. We set them down at nine o'clock and were told to come again at eleven. But, said one of them, as it is a card party, you may have to wait a few minutes, but don't be late. As the clock struck eleven, we were at the door, for Jerry was always punctual. The clock chimed the quarters, one, two, three, and then struck twelve, but the door did not open. The wind had been very changeable, with squalls of rain during the day, but now it came on a sharp driving sleet, which seemed to come all the way round. It was very cold, and there was no shelter. Jerry got off his box and came and pulled one of my cloths a little, more over my neck. Then he took a turn or two up and down, stamping his feet. Then he began to beat his arms, but that set him off coughing. So he opened the cab door and sat at the bottom with his feet on the pavement and was a little sheltered. Still, the clock chimed the quarters and no one came. At half past twelve, he rang the bell and asked the servant if he would be wanted that night. Oh, yes, you'll be wanted safe enough, said the man. 
You must not go. It will soon be over. And again, Jerry sat down, but his voice was so hoarse I could hardly hear him. At a quarter past one, the door opened, and the two gentlemen came out. They got into the cab without a word, and told Jerry where to drive. That was nearly two miles. My legs were numb with cold, and I thought I should have stumbled. When the men got out, they never said they were sorry to have kept us waiting so long, but were angry at the charge. However, as Jerry never charged more than was his due, so he never took less, and they had to pay for the two hours and a quarter waiting, but it was hard-earned money to Jerry. At last we got home. He could hardly speak, and his cough was dreadful. Polly asked no questions, but opened the door and held the lantern for him. Can't I do something? she said. Yes, get Jack something warm, and then boil me some gruel. This was said in a hoarse whisper. He could hardly get his breath, but he gave me a rub down as usual, and even went up into the hayloft for an extra bundle of straw for my bed. Polly brought me a warm mash that made me comfortable, and then they locked the door. It was late the next morning before anyone came, and then it was only Harry. He cleaned us and fed us and swept out the stalls. Then he put the straw back again as if it was Sunday. He was very still and neither whistled nor sang. At noon he came again and gave us our food and water. This time Dolly came with him. She was crying and I could gather from what they said that Jerry was dangerously ill and the doctor said it was a bad case. So two days passed and there was a great trouble indoors. We only saw Harry and sometimes Dolly. I think she came for company, for Polly was always with Jerry, and he had to be kept very quiet. On the third day, whilst Harry was in the stable, a tap came at the door, and Governor Grant came in. I wouldn't go to the house, my boy, he said, but I want to know how your father is. He is very bad, said Harry. He can't be much worse. They call it bronchitis. The doctor thinks it will turn one way or another tonight. That's bad, very bad, said Grant, shaking his head. I know two men who died of that last week. It takes them off in no time. But whilst there's life, there's hope. So you must keep up your spirits. Yes, said Harry quickly. And the doctor said that father had a better chance than most men because he didn't drink. He said yesterday the fever was so high that if father had been a drinking man, it would have burnt him up like a piece of paper. But I believe he thinks he will get over it. Don't you think he will, Mr Grant? The governor looked puzzled. If there's any rule that good men should get over these things, I'm sure he will, my boy. He's the best man I know. I'll look in early tomorrow. Early next morning he was there. Well, said he, Father is better, said Harry. Mother hopes he will get over it. Thank God, said the governor. And now you must keep him warm and keep his mind easy and that brings me to the horses. You see, Jack will be all the better for the rest of a week or two in a warm stable and you can easily take him a turn up and down the street to stretch his legs. But this young one, if he does not get work, he will soon be all up on end, as you may say 
and will be rather too much for you. And when he does go out, there'll be an accident. It is like that now, said Harry. I have kept him short of corn, but he's so full of spirit, I don't know what to do with him. Just so, said Grant. Now look here. Will you tell your mother that, if she is agreeable, I will come for him every day till something is arranged, and take him for a good spell of work, and whatever he earns, I'll bring your mother half of it, and that will help with the horse's feed. Your father is in a good club, I know, but that won't keep the horses, and they'll be eating their heads off all this time. I'll come at noon and hear what he says, and without waiting for Harry's thanks, he was gone. At noon I think he went and saw Polly, for he and Harry came to the stable together, harnessed Hotspur and took him out. For a week or more he came for Hotspur, and when Harry thanked him or said anything about his kindness, he laughed it off, saying it was all good luck for him, for his horses were wanting a little rest, which they could not otherwise have had. Jerry grew better, steadily, but the doctor said he must never go back to cab work again if he wished to be an old man. The children had many consultations together about what father and mother would do, and how they could help to earn money. One afternoon, Hotspur was brought in very wet and dirty. The streets are nothing but slush, said the governor. It will give you a good warming, my boy, to get him clean and dry. All right, governor, said Harry. I shall not leave him till he is. You know, I have been trained by my father. I wish all the boys had been trained like you, said the governor. While Harry was sponging off the mud from Hotspur's body and legs, Dolly came in looking very full of something. Who lives at Fairstow, Harry? Mother has got a letter from Fairstow. She seems so glad and ran upstairs to father with it. Don't you know? Why, it is the name of Mrs Fowler's place, mother's old mistress, you know, the lady that father met last summer who sent you and me five shillings each. Oh, Mrs Fowler, of course I know all about her. I wonder what she is writing to mother about. Mother wrote to her last week, said Harry. You know she told father if he gave up the cab work, she would like to know. I wonder what she says. Run in and see Dolly. Harry scrubbed away at Hotspur. In a few minutes, Dolly came dancing into the stable. Oh, Harry, there never was anything so beautiful. Mrs Fowler says we are all to go and live near her. There is a cottage new empty that will just suit us, with a garden and a hen house and apple trees and everything. Her coachman is going away in the spring, and then she will want father in his place. And there are good families round where you can get a place in the garden, or the stable, or as a page boy. And there's a good school for me, and mother is laughing and crying by turns, and father does look so happy. That's uncommon jolly, said Harry, and just the right thing, I should say. It will suit father and mother both, but I don't intend to be a page boy with tight clothes and rows of buttons. I'll be a groom or a gardener. It was quickly settled that as soon as Jerry was well enough, they should remove to the country and that the cab and horses should be sold as soon as possible. This was heavy news for me, for I was not young now and could not look for any improvement in my condition. 
Since I left Birtwick, I had never been so happy as with my dear master Jerry. But three years of cab work, even under the best conditions, would tell on one's strength, and I felt that I was not the horse that I had been. Grant said at once that he would take Hotspur, and there were men on the stand who would have bought me, and Jerry said I should not go to cab work again with just anybody, and the governor promised to find a place for me where I should be comfortable. The day came for going away. Jerry had not been allowed to go out yet, and I never saw him after the New Year's Eve. Polly and the children came to bid me goodbye. Poor old Jack, dear old Jack, I wish we could take you with us, she said, and then, laying her hand on my mane, she put her face close to my neck and kissed me. Dolly was crying and kissed me too. Harry stroked me a great deal, but said nothing. Only he seemed very sad, and so I was led away to my new place. Chapter 48 Farmer Thoroughgood and His Grandson Willie At this sale, of course, I found myself in company with the old broken-down horses, some lame, some broken-winded, some old, and some that I am sure it would have been merciful to shoot. The buyers and sellers too, many of them, looked not much better off than the poor beasts they were bargaining about. There were poor old men trying to get a horse or pony for a few pounds that might drag about some little wood or coal cart. There were poor men trying to sell a worn out beast for two or three pounds rather than have the greater loss of killing him. Some of them looked as if poverty and hard times had hardened them all over. But there were others that I would have willingly used the last of my strength in serving, poor and shabby but kind and human, with voices that I could trust. There was one tottering old man that took a great fancy to me, and I to him, but I was not strong enough. It was an anxious time. Coming from the better part of the fair, I noticed a man who looked like a gentleman farmer with a young boy by his side. He had a broad back and round shoulders, a kind ruddy face, and he wore a broad-brimmed hat. When he came up to me and my companions, he stood still, and gave a pitiful look around upon us. I saw his eye rest on me. I still had a good mane and tail, which did something for my appearance. I pricked my ears and looked at him. There's a horse, Willie, that has known better days. Poor old fellow, said the boy. Do you think, Grandpapa, he was ever a carriage horse? Oh yes, my boy, said the farmer coming closer. He might have been anything when he was young. Look at his nostrils and his ears, the shape of his neck and shoulder. There's a deal of breeding about that horse. He put out his hand and gave me a kind pat on the neck. I put out my nose in answer to his kindness. The boy stroked my face. Poor old fellow. See, Grandpapa, how well he understands kindness. Could not you buy him and make him young again as you did with Ladybird? My dear boy, I can't make all old horses young. Besides, Lady Bird was not so very old as she was run down and badly used. Well, Grandpapa, I don't believe that this one is old. Look at his mane and tail. I wish you would look into his mouth and then you could tell. Though he is so very thin, his eyes are not sunk like some old horses. The old gentleman laughed. 
Bless the boy, he's as horsey as his old grandfather. But do look at his mouth, Grandpapa, and ask the price. I'm sure he would grow young in our meadows. The man who had brought me for sale now put in his word. The young gentleman's a real knowing one, sir. Now the fact is, this here horse is just pulled down with overwork in the cabs. He's not an old one, and I heard as how the veterinary should say that a six months runoff would set him right up, being as how his wind was not broken. I've had the tending of him these ten days past, and a grateful a pleasanter animal I never met with, and twould be worth a gentleman's while to give a five pound note for him and let him have a chance. I'll be bound he'll be worth twenty pounds next spring. The old gentleman laughed, and the little boy looked up eagerly. Oh, Grandpapa, did you not say the colt sold for five pounds more than you expected? You would not be poorer if you did buy this one. The farmer slowly felt my legs, which were much swelled and strained. Then he looked at my mouth. Thirteen or fourteen, I should say. Just trot him out, will you? I arched my poor thin neck, raised my tail a little, and threw out my legs as well as I could, for they were very stiff. What is the lowest you will take for him? said the farmer as I came back. Five pounds, sir. That was the lowest price my master set. "'Tis a speculation,' said the old gentleman, shaking his head, but at the same time slowly drawing out his purse. "'Quite a speculation. "'Have you any more business here?' he said, counting the sovereigns into his hand. "'No, sir. I can take him for you to the inn, if you please. "'Do so. I am now going there.' They walked forward, and I was led behind. The boy could hardly control his delight, and the old gentleman seemed to enjoy his pleasure." I had a good feed at the inn, and was then gently ridden home by a servant of my new master's, and turned into a large meadow with a shed in one corner of it. Mr Thoroughgood, for that was the name of my benefactor, gave orders that I should have hay and oats every night and morning, and the run of the meadow during the day, and you, Willie, said he, must take the oversight of him. I will give him in charge to you. The boy was proud of his charge and undertook it all in seriousness. There was not a day when he did not pay me a visit, sometimes picking me out from amongst the other horses and giving me a bit of a carrot or something good, or sometimes standing by me whilst I ate my oats. He always came with kind words and caresses, and of course I grew very fond of him. He called me old crony, as I used to come to him in the field and follow him about. Sometimes he brought his grandfather, who always looked closely at my legs. This is our point, Willie, he would say, but he is improving so steadily that I think we shall see a change for the better in the spring. The perfect rest, the good food, the soft turf and gentle exercise soon began to tell on my condition and my spirits. I had a good constitution from my mother, and I was never strained when I was young so that I had a better chance than many horses who have been worked before they came to their full strength. During the winter, my legs improved so much that I began to feel quite young again. The spring came round, and one day in March, Mr Thoroughgood determined that he would try me in the carriage. I was well pleased, and he and Willie drove me a few miles. My legs were not stiff now, and I did the work with perfect ease.
He's growing young, Willie. We must give him a little gentle work now, and by midsummer he will be as good as Ladybird. He has a beautiful mouth and good paces. They can't be better. Oh, Grandpapa, how glad I am you bought him. So am I, my boy. But he has to thank you more than me. We must now be looking out for a quiet, genteel place for him, where he will be valued. Chapter 49 My Last Home One day, during this summer, the groom cleaned and dressed me with such extraordinary care that I thought some new change must be at hand. He trimmed my fetlocks and legs, passed the tar brush over my hoofs, and even parted my forelock. I think the harness had an extra polish. Willie seemed half anxious, half merry, as he got into the chase with his grandfather. If the ladies take to him, said the old gentleman, they'll be suited, and he'll be suited, but we can but try. At the distance of a mile or two from the village, we came to a pretty low house with a lawn and shrubbery at the front, and a drive up to the door. Willie rang the bell and asked if Miss Bloomfield or Miss Ellen were at home. Yes, they were. So whilst Willie stayed with me, Mr Thoroughgood went into the house. In about ten minutes he returned, followed by three ladies. One tall, pale lady, wrapped in a white shawl, leaned on a younger lady, with dark eyes and a merry face. The other, a very stately-looking person, was Miss Bloomfield. They all came and looked at me and asked questions. The younger lady, that was Miss Ellen, took to me very much. She said she was sure she should like me. I had such a good face. The tall, pale lady said that she should always be nervous in riding behind a horse that had once been down, as I might come down again, and if I did, she should never get over the fright. You see, ladies, said Mr Thoroughgood, many first-rate horses have had their knees broken through the carelessness of their drivers without any fault of their own, and from what I see of this horse, I should say that this is his case. But of course, I do not wish to influence you. If you incline, you can have him on trial, and then your coachman will see what he thinks of him. You have always been such a good adviser to us about our horses, said the stately lady, that your recommendation would go a long way with me. And if my sister Lavinia sees no objection, we will accept your offer of a trial with thanks. It was then arranged that I should be sent for the next day. In the morning, a smart-looking young man came for me. At first he looked pleased, but when he saw my knees, he said in a disappointed voice, I didn't think, sir, you would have recommended my ladies a blemished horse like that. Handsome is, that handsome does, said my master. You are only taking him on trial, and I am sure you will do fairly by him, young man. And if he is not as safe as any horse you ever drove, send him back. I was led home, placed in a comfortable stable, fed and left to myself. The next day, when my groom was cleaning my face, he said, That is just like the star that Black Beauty had. He's much the same height too. I wonder where he is now. A little further on, he came to the place in my neck where I was bled, and where a little knot was left in the skin. He almost started, and began to look me over carefully, talking to himself. 
white star in the forehead, one white foot on the off side, this little knot just in that place, then looking at the middle of my back. And as I am alive, there is a little patch of white hair that John used to call Beauty's three-penny bit. It must be Black Beauty. Why, Beauty, Beauty, do you know me? Little Joe Green that almost killed you. And he began patting and patting me as if he was quite overjoyed. I could not say that I remembered him, for now he was a fine-grown young fellow with black whiskers and a man's voice. But I was sure he knew me, and that he was Joe Green, and I was very glad. I put my nose up to him and tried to say that we were friends. I never saw a man so pleased. Give you a fair trial. I should think so indeed. I wonder who the rascal was that broke your knees, my old beauty. You must have been badly served out somewhere. Well, well. It won't be my fault if you haven't the good times of it now. I wish John Manley was here to see you. In the afternoon, I was put into a low park chair and brought to the door. Miss Ellen was going to try me, and Green went with her. I soon found that she was a good driver, and she seemed pleased with my paces. I heard Joe telling her about me, and that he was sure I was Squire Gordon's old black beauty. When we returned, the other sisters came out to hear how I had behaved myself. She told them what she had just heard, and said, I shall certainly write to Mrs Gordon and tell her that her favourite horse has come to us, how pleased she will be. After this, I was driven every day for a week or so, and as I appeared to be quite safe, Miss Lavinia at last ventured out in the small close carriage. After this, it was quite decided to keep me, and call me by my old name of Black Beauty. I have now lived in this happy place a whole year. Joe is the best and kindest of grooms. My work is easy and pleasant, and I feel my strength and spirits all coming back again. Mr Thoroughgood said to Joe the other day, In your place, he will last till he is twenty years old, perhaps more. Willie always speaks to me when he can, and treats me as his special friend. My ladies have promised that I shall never be sold, and so I have nothing to fear. And here my story ends. My troubles are all over, and I am at home. And often before I am quite awake, I fancy I am still in the orchard at Birtwick, standing with my old friends under the apple trees.